Well, all right, 10.30, how are we? Good, good. Well, hey, there's a lot of us here, and um, let me go ahead and just say this, because summer's almost over, and August is coming, and that means everybody's back from vacation, and it means more people are coming to church, and it means that this 10.30 service will just continue to get more full, okay? So um, I just want to say, and amen is right, um, we just want to have a place to put people when they show up for church. So one of the things you guys could do here at 10.30 to help us is this, um, Wake up earlier on Sunday mornings and come at 9, okay? Uh, throughout the school year, our 1030 service and our 1159 service, you know, they're pretty close, running neck and neck. Uh, our 9 o'clock service has plenty of seats open. And so if you love Jesus and you love people, wake up early and come at 9, all right? That would really help us out. So, um, all right, uh, what you just saw, let me mention this and we'll dive in. Ecclesiastes study coming up next week, Chasing the Wind series. I'm really excited about this series because I believe that the stories of a lot of people where we live here in this country sound a lot like Solomon's story. They got a lot of stuff they don't need and they think if they can get more of it, life will be better and they get more of it and it's not better and they're still searching for hope and joy and life and meaning and purpose. And so here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I want you to be here um, throughout this series starting next Sunday. I want you to invite people to come with you as we talk about Solomon, um, all that he experienced, what he figured out about life and its meaning, and what Jesus has to say about the abundant life he offers us. We good? Okay, all right. Let's do this. Let's get our Bibles. Let's go Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Um, in light of what we're getting ready to do tonight at the river, baptizing a bunch of people, and I think we've got, I don't know, 40-ish people um, sign up for baptism now, which is huge. Uh, I wanted to take some time this morning and just teach a message and teach through a passage of Scripture that I think would just help prepare us and get us ready as a church family for what we're going to experience later on today. And I just wanted to go ahead right out of the box and share my intentions with you so that nobody is wondering what in the world we're trying to accomplish this morning in our time together, okay? So um, here are my intentions. For those of us in the room who are here and we would say, Man, I know Jesus, I love Jesus, I've been baptized to let people know what he's done in my life, um, but I don't know if I'm going to come tonight. Like, my prayer for you is that this morning would send you out of this room with the understanding of how significant and important what we're doing tonight truly is, so that you won't shrug off tonight like it's no big deal and you'll come and celebrate God changing lives of people in this church. That's my hope for you. Um, for those of us in the room who would go, James, you know what? Uh, when I was 13 years old, man, I put my faith in Christ and he changed my life. Or maybe it's a different age for you, but I've never been baptized before. My intention, my hope for you, prayer for you is this. Is that this morning as we walk through this message, again, you would realize how important, how significant your baptism is. And that at the end of the morning, you'd walk back and talk to a couple of our pastors, sign up for baptism, show up to the river tonight, and publicly express your faith in him as God, Savior, and Lord. Um, for those of you that are here and you go, James, none of what you said makes any sense because I don't know Jesus and I'm just checking this thing out and this is all kind of weird for me. Here's my prayer for you today. I pray that as we walk through this morning, that God would reveal Jesus to you in a powerful, real way, um, that you would come to faith in Christ as your Savior. You show up at the river tonight to be baptized, to express that faith, and that God would, in the power of his Holy Spirit, start transforming you, changing you, and giving you the ability to live the life he's called you to live. So those are my intentions for this morning, okay? Um, so Acts chapter 2. 
Acts chapter 2. In a moment, we're going to just pick up and start reading in verse 1. Um, But before we do, I just want to give some background, some context, so that we can really kind of understand what we're about to read, okay? Um, Before Acts chapter 2, Jesus Christ had died, he had risen from the dead, and then he had spent about 40 days walking around on the earth saying some things. And so he didn't like die, raise, and then just go straight into heaven. He took some time to appear to hundreds of eyewitnesses to teach some things, say some things before he finally left the earth. And in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus was giving final instructions to his disciples. And and what we know now, that passage, it's called the Great Commission. And we see Jesus in that passage coming and saying to his followers, when I leave, I want you to go into all the world to make disciples, to baptize those people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I want you to teach them to observe everything that I've commanded you. And Jesus promised that he would be with them every step of the way. So I wanted to stop and just say this to our church. When we at Westridge talk about our mission and our purpose being that we want to help people become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about disciple making. Like our mission and purpose here is to take the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done for sinful people outside the walls of the church and to relentlessly but in love and humility preach that, proclaim that, share it, show it with people who need him. Like, we want to go do that. And as we reach people, we want to start to, to, before we teach them, we want to baptize them, right, so that they can publicly express their faith. And then we want to begin to teach them to love Jesus, to follow Jesus, so that we can send them back outside the walls of the church and they can make more disciples. That's the purpose of this church. And so here's what I want you to know as a pastor here. Um, If you're going to be a part of this church, you, you just have to know that nothing will stand in the way of us going after that mission. Nothing. No matter how good, spiritual, right things may seem, that's what we're going to be about. And nothing is going to get in the way of us chasing after that. Now, after Jesus tells his disciples to go be about making other disciples, baptizing them and teaching them, it's interesting what he says next. And you can read about this in Luke 24. You can read about this in Acts 1. He comes to these guys, says, here's what I want you to do. Go into the world, preach forgiveness of sins, preach resurrection, preach life, preach hope, make disciples, baptize people. And then he says, but don't go yet. I want you to go do this, but don't go yet. I just want you to stay here for a little while. And the reason Jesus looked at his followers and said that to them, it was simple. Um, Because after Jesus was going to leave the earth, he had promised his disciples in the book of John that he was going to send the Holy Spirit into the world. And his declaration to his followers in Acts 1 and Luke 24 is this. He says, listen, when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to clothe you in power, and he's going to give you the ability to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. So I want you to go make disciples, but I want you to stay here. I'm going to leave. He's going to come, and then you'll have power. And so in Acts chapter 1, what we see is this. We see about 120 followers of Jesus. They're sitting in a room. They have no idea what they're waiting for, but they know the Holy Spirit's coming. So they're just waiting. Now, while they're waiting, you know what they start doing? They start praying. They get on their faces, and they start praying. They don't get out Monopoly boards, right? They don't go out back and play cornhole. Um, They get on their faces, and they start praying. And, And I say that to say this. 
Church, listen to me. If the mission of God's church is the same today as it was back then 2,000 years ago, and it is, it is, it didn't change. If it's still the same, if we're all called to go make disciples, share the gospel, baptize people, teach them to love and follow Jesus, one of the things you and I have got to commit to as a church family is prayer. We have to. I mean, is it not overwhelming to look at the world sometimes and to feel overwhelmed by what we see? To feel overwhelmed by the lostness, the brokenness, the need, the hopelessness that exists out there. It's overwhelming at times. And I know there have been times in my life where I've looked at it and gone, what in the world can we do? I mean, God, we're here for what? I mean, 80 years if we're loved. What can we accomplish in that amount of time as we're living and breathing and trying to do the work of God on the earth? And here's the simple answer to that, church. Um, by ourselves, nothing. By ourselves, we can do nothing. But I'm convinced when I read this book, man, if we'll commit to get on our faces and to pray and ask God to work in and through us by the power of his Holy Spirit, that God will respond and his Holy Spirit will bear witness to Jesus Christ through our lives and we'll get a front row seat to see in the lives of our neighbors, our friends, our family members, our coworkers, those who might seem impossible to reach. We'll get a front row seat to seeing their lives lives changed by the God of the universe. We've got to pray for that church. And so here's the church, X1, on their faces, waiting, praying, he's coming. And uh, I want us just to pick up, start reading Acts 2, verse 1, and we'll see what happens next. The Bible says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now let's hit the pause button and talk about that for a moment. Again, get the picture. 120 people waiting, praying, and all of a sudden rushing wind starts coming through the room. I mean, imagine us being here for church today, and all of a sudden the buildings start shaking and hurricane-type winds start coming through the room. I mean, this is what they're experiencing. And, and the Bible says in the midst of that, fire starts falling onto the disciples. And it's kind of strange. The Bible says they start separating out into little tongues and resting on the disciples. And they started speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit enabled them. And, and we'll pick up again. We'll start reading in verse 5. The Bible says there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each of them was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what? does this mean? So the Holy Spirit comes, and immediately, man, there's power there. And listen, the Bible says again, these disciples started speaking other languages. Now let me clarify on this, okay? They weren't speaking gibberish, right? 
Um, they weren't speaking languages that no one knew. These disciples opened their mouths and the Holy Spirit directed every syllable that came off of their tongues so that the people in front of them started hearing the wonders and the works of God in their own native language. If you've ever wondered, what does the biblical gift of tongues look like? There it is. That's it. That's it. And so you got people from Rome going, hold on, that guy's from Galilee and he's speaking Italian. How in the world is that guy? I hear him speaking in Italian. He's telling us about the words of God in Italian. I mean, you got, I mean, consider like Chinese guys there, right? The guy's speaking China. Are you kidding me? I mean, there's people from, from Arabia. They're going, that guy's speaking in Arabic. I'm hearing the wonders of God in my own native language. And the people are looking at each other going, what's going on? What does all this mean? And there's another group going, man, these guys are just drunk. They've gone crazy. And Peter finally steps up in verse 9 and he says, or I'm sorry, he steps up after the passage we just read in verse 13. And he says, listen, nobody's drunk. He said, it's 9 in the morning for crying out loud. No one's drunk. Let me tell you what this means. And I love what Peter does next. He goes Old Testament on these people. Now now let me tell you why it's so huge for us to get this, okay? Um, And I want to see how smart you are. The Jewish people, right? Remember, that's the crowd he's speaking to. Devout Jews from every nation under heaven standing in front of Peter. That's who he's preaching to. Now, what do the Jewish people use as their Bibles? You can talk in church. It's okay. Just scream it at me. Okay, I, okay. Old Testament, Torah, right? Yeah, Torah. First five books of the Old Testament, the books of the law, and then the rest of the Old Testament's the Hebrew Bible. This is what these people knew as the Scriptures, And so, listen to me, these people in front of Peter, they would have known their Bibles very, very well. I mean, at six years old, a kid started going to Torah school, and from age six to age ten, that kid would have spent those four to five years of his life memorizing the first five books of the Old Testament. I mean, some of us have six, seven, eight-year-olds in the room, and we're going, dude, my kid would never, like, do well in that kind of school, right? Right? This is what they did, and and at age 10, the really smart kids, they continued on to study the rest of the Old Testament. The average students, they would leave at age 10, and they would go learn their family trade, and they would start working at 10 years old. But even the kids that left at age 10, listen, they were in the synagogue every week with their families sitting under the teaching of the Old Testament, so they knew their Bibles well. For a Jewish person sitting in that crowd, here's one of the things that they were confident of. They were confident that every time they read the Old Testament scriptures, that time and time and time again, God was saying to them through his word, there was coming a day where he was going to send a savior into the world, a rescuer, a redeemer, someone who was going to come and set people free, reconcile people back to God, restore people to a right relationship with him again through dying for sins, raising from the dead to offer eternal life. They were confident of it. I mean, over 350 times in their Bible, God's saying it and pointing to it. The first time in Genesis 3, God says it. After Adam and Eve sin, he goes, man, Eve, one of your offspring, speaking of Jesus, he's going to come one day, he's going to crush Satan's head. So these people knew it, man, he's, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And so again, Peter, he goes Old Testament, I love it. He quotes a passage from Joel chapter 2, verses 28 um, through 32. He quotes a passage from Psalm 16, 8 through 11. And he quotes a passage from Psalm 110, verse 1, to answer the question of what does this mean. And he's basically looking at the crowd of people and saying, all of this means that the Messiah was here. 
He was here. I mean, imagine, think about this. He's going, remember what Joel said. He said that when the Messiah had come, that God would pour out his spirit and do all these signs and wonders, and anyone who'd call on his name would be saved. Well, that's happening right here in front of you today. He said, remember what David said, that the Holy One of God, he would know life and that his flesh would never see corruption, that he would raise from the dead and he would sit at the right hand of God to rule and reign as king over everything. That's what all this is about. And Peter's looking at him and he's going, you've been waiting on him. You knew God promised he would come. You wanted a savior, you wanted a deliverer, you wanted a rescuer, you wanted somebody who was stronger than sin, death, and hell. That guy was here, his name was Jesus, and you killed him. You killed him. But then Peter goes, but it's okay. Because three days later, God raised him from the dead to conquer sin, death, and hell once and for all. And if you call on his name, he will save you. That's what all this is about, Peter said. Listen, church, this is the good news that we as a church gather together every Sunday to celebrate. The good news that we serve a risen Savior. We serve a God who loves sinful people so much that when all of us were spiritually dead and deserving of his wrath and deserving of his punishment, he came after us. Because of the great love with which he loved us, Paul said in Ephesians 2, he showed us mercy and he poured out grace onto us so that no one in this room would ever have to try to to attempt to earn our salvation through good works. But instead, if we respond to faith in Jesus Christ as God, Savior, and Lord, God gives us salvation and eternal life as a free gift. That's what we come together to celebrate week in and week out. And when we scatter from this place, that's the good news that we take to people outside the walls of this church who desperately need to know Jesus. Church, that's why we're here. When the people in Acts 2 heard this message about Jesus, who he was, and what he had done for them, I love their response. Look back down at Acts 2, verse 37. The Bible says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? I love this verse, that, and you can leave that up for a minute. I love that verse, that language. They were cut to the heart. You know what we see happening in Acts 2.37? What we see is this. We see conviction taking place, and we see faith coming alive in dead hearts. That's what we see through the preaching of the gospel. And these people are sitting back going, Okay, we believe that. We believe what you're saying is true. Now, what do we do with that? How do we respond to that? And Peter tells them in the very next verse, in verse 38, how they should respond. And I love the simplicity of this verse. Peter says to them, here's what you do. You believe that message is true. Jesus, who he is, what he's done. He says, repent. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, In the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Listen, I've grown up in church all my life, and uh, I think a lot of churches are famous for taking things that are very simple and making them very complicated. You know what Peter does here? Keeps it really, really easy for us. He says, you believe Jesus is God's Savior, Lord? You believe the good news that he died for your sins? and he rose from the dead to bring you eternal life, um, the response is simple. You repent, you get baptized, 
And the promise of this is you get the Holy Spirit. I love this. And I just want us to walk through this verse, X 238, and talk about what each of those things mean in our lives so that we can understand truly what our response to the gospel looks like as believers in Jesus Christ. And we'll start with repentance. Peter says to repent. Um, the idea of repentance is this. Repentance is about turning. It's about changing your mind, and the changing of your mind will ultimately lead to a change of direction, okay? So let's apply this to Jesus. Let's apply this to faith. Um, you get this picture of a person who is living life their own way. They're doing what they want. God is kind of in the background, no thought. And so, you know, they've got a lot of other gods out there. And by gods, I mean cultural, worldly gods. Maybe it's pleasure. Maybe it's power. Maybe it's status. Maybe it's money. I don't know. They're their own God. They're kind of doing their own thing, living how they want. And then all of a sudden, the brakes get slammed on because they hear about Jesus. And they start to believe, man, he is God, and he was perfect, and he took my punishment for my sin, and he defeated death so that I could have eternal life. And somebody comes to that realization when they hear the gospel, and what they do is this, is they start to change their mind. They repent. They go, you know what? I've been living that way for a long time and believing some things that don't match up here. And so what I'm going to do now is change my mind about Jesus, who he is. I'm going to change my mind about who I am and what I need in life. And what I'm going to do is respond in faith, believe in him as God, Savior, Lord. I'm changing my mind. And ultimately, that's going to lead to a change in direction in my life. And instead of God being in the background of my life, he's going to become life. I'm going to turn that old me. It's just gone. And this new me through Christ is in front of me. And I am changing direction. And I'm going to come and I'm going to follow after him. That's a picture of what repentance is. Now, listen, church, again, for somebody that truly believes the gospel message, for somebody who has faith in Christ as God's Savior, Lord, repentance is not an optional thing. It is a natural result of faith in Jesus Christ. Um, salvation is never followed by, you know what, I prayed a prayer because I was scared of hell, but I'm going to continue to live like hell because I don't really care about Jesus. I just didn't want to go to hell. That's not faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus, again, is not, I'll pray a prayer so that I don't have to suffer for eternity, but I'm just going to kind of do what I want to do for the rest of my life. Salvation is not, um, hey, Jesus, appreciate what you've done for me. I've got a lot of living to do, and here's kind of my plans and what I want to do. So why don't you jump in on what I'm doing and come follow after me? That'd be great. That's not salvation. That's not repentance. Again, salvation is, I see Jesus. He's greater than anything I could live my life for. I can't believe what he's done for me, and he doesn't become an addition to life. He becomes life. And so we turn and we chase after him every chance we get. Church, repentance is about us refusing to let anything in life prevent us from following Christ, living in obedience to Christ, and being a part of what he's doing in the world. And we do it joyfully and we do it cheerfully because we believe in what he's done for us and we believe his way of life is best. Christ doesn't rob us of anything, church. You get that, right? He sets us free. For freedom, Christ sets us free. Life, freedom, hope, purpose, meaning, joy is found in him and him alone. Repentance is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And I just need you to wrestle this morning. If you're here 
and you're that person who would say, I know Jesus, but nothing about me has ever changed. I don't know. I'm just going, man, I love you, and I'm concerned for you, and I want you to wrestle and really figure out if you know him, because if you know him, repentance, it should take place. Not just once, right? Repentance takes place at salvation, but as a great theologian and reformer Martin Luther said, all of a believer's life is one of repentance. Just waking up daily and going, I'm turning from sin, I'm changing my mind, I'm trying to follow you. This is repentance, and it defines the life of believers. Um, Peter goes on. He says, if you believe the gospel, not only should you repent and be defined by a lifestyle of repentance, but you should be baptized. You should be baptized. This is what we're doing tonight, and this is why I wanted to talk about this this morning. Um, I, I grew up in a church, and, you know, okay church, but I grew up in a church where when people made a decision to trust Christ as Savior and Lord, um, here's how they usually responded. We would sing that song, Just As I Am, about 879 times in a row, right? One more stanza, you come. You remember that? If you grew up in church? It's my church. And so we'd sing it a lot of times, and, uh, and that person who professed faith in Christ, they would come down the aisle, tell the pastor the decision they made, and uh, we'd fill a card out, and the pastor would stand up at the front of the church, and he'd read their name, and tell the church the decision that he'd made. Now, listen, I'm not making a case against that. I'm not saying that's good, bad. Um, I'm not, you know, trying to say or stand up here and saying that's sinful, that's wrong. Uh, all I'm saying is this. So when we look in the scriptures, we see something different. See, people who profess faith in Jesus Christ in the scriptures um, to make their decision to follow, trust, believe in Jesus made known in a public setting, you know what they did? They got baptized. It was really that easy. There were no cards. There was no raising of hands. It was, I'm going to get in the water and dunk me. It was baptism. That's it. Church, this is what baptism is. And this is why it's so important for us here at Westridge to baptize people who know Jesus. Baptism is a person climbing in the water and publicly declaring to their church family, Jesus Christ has taken hold of me. He's saved me. He's redeemed me. When we dunk that person back in the water, it's that person declaring, the old me before Jesus, that person is dead. That person died with Christ, is buried with Christ, and we raise that person up. It's that person declaring to the church, the new me is alive in Jesus Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Jesus Christ who lives in me. This is the picture of baptism. Now, I want to say this. Um, that act of baptism... Like you climbing in the water and us dunking you, that act does not save you. And I will argue with you to the end of eternity about that. Um, what saves you is faith in Jesus Christ and that alone. And this book teaches it consistently. It's not Jesus plus something. It's just Jesus. He saves you. Baptism is the means by which we let the world know that we have been saved. This is it. And I love this. When you look in the Bible, this is why baptism, I believe, was never an afterthought for the early church. It was never like, hey, I'll pray this prayer now, and five years later I'll be baptized. It was never an afterthought. It was, are you kidding me? He did that for me. What do I do? Be baptized? Absolutely, I'm going to let the world know he saved me. Are you kidding me? And he just got baptized. And so here's what I want to say to us this morning, church. Um, if you've never been baptized, if you are a person who's here and you know Jesus, but you've never been baptized, come be baptized tonight. 
Make it known to your church family that Christ has saved you. If you're here this morning, you don't even know Jesus. Here's what I would say. Believe in him. Repent of your sin. Come tonight and be baptized. We want to celebrate with you about what God is doing in your life. Baptism, it's important, it's crucial. We do it out of obedience and love for Jesus. If you've never been baptized, be baptized. Be baptized. Um, Last thing. Last thing Peter says is this, and this is such an incredible promise. He says, you believe the gospel message, you put faith in Jesus, you respond through repentance and baptism, and the promise that you get is the gift of the Holy Spirit. I love this, man. I grew up in a church, good old Southern Baptist church. Anytime anybody mentioned the Holy Spirit, people got nervous. You know what I'm talking about? Listen to me, church. We can't live the life God's called us, created us, saved us to without the Holy Spirit. We just can't. I want to tell you a little bit about the Holy Spirit so that you understand how unbelievable it is that God would put his own spirit inside of our bodies to give us power to live the life he's called us to. I mean, Paul says, Romans 8, 9, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't belong to Jesus. 1 Corinthians 12, it's only through the Holy Spirit that somebody can call Jesus Lord. And so um, let's talk about him. Here's who the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit first, he's a person, not a power. Right? The Holy Spirit is a he, not an it. The Holy Spirit is not some force you just wield around to use however you want to use him. Listen to me. Like Jesus and like God the Father, he is God, the third person of the Trinity, promised to those who know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And when we know him, he comes and he invades our bodies and he does some things for us as followers of Jesus. And I'll tell you a little bit about what the Bible says he does for us. According to the Bible, the Holy Spirit comforts us. He reminds us of what Jesus commands us to obey and do as his followers. He convicts us of sin. You know, I don't have the need to get up here and try to convict you of your sin on Sundays. Because I know if I just preach this book, the Holy Spirit is going to convict you of your sin. I don't have to do that. He's going to do it. Um, The Holy Spirit, the Bible says, he will guide us in truth. The Holy Spirit prays for us. I love that. He gives us spiritual gifts to use to build up the church. He produces spiritual fruit in our lives. Paul talks about this in Galatians 5. Is the Holy Spirit at work in somebody? Um, Their life is going to be defined by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the Holy Spirit at work in you. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit gives us the ability to put our sin to death. So if you're a child of God and you know Jesus, you get that because you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, sin has no power or authority over you anymore, right? That through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can look at sin and kill your sin. It's the Holy Spirit at work in you. This is good news. Um, The Holy Spirit gives us courage. He gives us boldness. He gives us power to be witnesses for Jesus. And the Bible says the Holy Spirit himself loves and testifies and glorifies Jesus. That's why we're never going to be one of those churches um, who does really weird things and then blames it on the Holy Spirit. And I don't mean to offend anybody, but if you're offended, I can live with it. Um, But listen to me. The Holy Spirit loves Jesus. And he wants to bring attention to Jesus every chance he gets. 
and the Holy Spirit at work in the life of an individual and the Holy Spirit at work in the life of a church is always going to bring attention to Jesus. Always. Why? Because he loves Jesus. He glorifies Jesus. He's about testifying Jesus. So if you ever come to me and go, hey, pastor, can I bark like a dog today? No, you can't. Because Jesus doesn't get any glory from that. People just look at you and think you're weird, right? This is why in 1 John 4, John says, listen, test every spirit. Every spirit. Church, there are a lot of spirits at work in the world and even in a lot of churches. And the way that you know whether the Holy Spirit's at work or if it's another spirit at work is who it's bringing attention to. Spirit's at work, he's going to bring attention to Jesus. If it's distracting and chaotic and disorderly and weird and annoying, that's not the Holy Spirit. It's not the Holy Spirit. So Peter, back to this message. Repent, be baptized, receive the Holy Spirit. I just wonder how many of us sitting in the room today, we hear that message and we immediately try to talk ourselves out of it. Like, I wonder if there's some of us in the room, too, who are sitting here going, so, hey, James, um, are you saying that I get the Holy Spirit, like, after repentance, or does that come before, or when I'm baptized, or after, like, when I'm in the water, or when does all that stuff happen? And here's what I'd say to you. I don't know. Who cares? And I guess I would say, too, why are you asking? (laughs) Trying to figure out what you don't have to do to be okay? I'm a pretty simple guy, and I hope that you've come to know that about me in the past seven months, and and here's just about as simple as I want to keep it. Um... If this book says that in response to the gospel we should repent and be baptized and we'll get the Holy Spirit, then I just want to say to our church, let's do what the book says. Let's repent. Let's be baptized if we haven't. And let's know that we'll receive the Holy Spirit. Love what Jesus says. Here's where we'll close. He says, when you get the Holy Spirit, it's better than having him here walking alongside of you. He said this in John 16, verse 7. Some of us go, James, I don't know if I can believe that, right? If Jesus were here, it'd be easy not to sin because he'd be watching everything I was doing. It'd be easy to witness because I can just say, hey, everybody, here's Jesus, right? Um, Jesus goes, no, no, no. When you get the Holy Spirit, he won't just come walk alongside of you. He's going to come live inside of your bodies, and he's going to give you power and enable you to do everything I've called you to do. So again, for those of us in the room, here's what I would say to wrestle with. If you're here and you know Jesus and you've been baptized and the Holy Spirit's living inside of you and at work in you, I celebrate you, I love you, and help us disciple other people. Um, If you're here this morning and you're the person who goes, man, I know Jesus and I can feel him working inside of me, Spirit, I believe he's at work inside of me, but I've never been baptized. Again, I'm just going, man, let's just... Let's just be the church. I don't want us to be the church that shows up and hears the book and goes, wow, that was good, and then leaves, and we don't do it. I want us to be the church that hears this talk and goes, I just do it that way. So if you've never been baptized, again, here's my challenge for you. Here's my encouragement. In just a minute, we're going to have a couple pastors in the back of the room. And I just want to encourage you, go back there, say, you know what, I believe in Jesus, who he is, what he's done, and I want to be baptized tonight. And sign up for baptism and show up at the river at 6 o'clock and eat some hot dogs and be baptized. Let your church know what Christ has done in your life. Again, if you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus at all. I'm going to encourage you. Get out of your seat in a moment as we start to sing. Walk back to one of our pastors. The Bible says if we believe in our hearts that Jesus is Lord and confess with our mouths that God raised him from the dead, he'll save us. So walk back there and tell one of our pastors, I believe that.
And I want to be baptized tonight to let my church family, my new church family, know that I believe that. And again, the promise, you leave here with the Holy Spirit. God starts changing you, transforming you, makes you a new creation, gives you the ability to live the life he's called you to live in the scriptures. So I want to take a moment and just pray for us as we get ready to respond and close. I just want to invite you just to pray right along with me, if you will. Father God, we just thank you so much for the opportunity to be here today, God. We just thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you, God, for sending him into the world to save us, redeem us, restore us to a right relationship with you. God, to raise from the dead, to bring us eternal life. And Father, I just pray for people in the room this morning, God, who need to come into a relationship with Jesus. I pray, God, cut that person to the heart, convict them of their sin, awaken faith inside of them. Give them the courage and boldness, God, to step out of their seat in just a moment. God, to share that news with one of our pastors. God, to make that public tonight before the church in baptism. For those of us in the room, God, that are sitting here and we think we know Jesus, uh, but we're not sure if we do because nothing in our lives have ever, have, has ever changed. Nothing looks different. God, would you just make that person right now in this moment just wrestle with that? God, if they don't really know Jesus, reveal that to them, God. God, and I pray that that person in this room would respond in faith this morning, true faith in Jesus Christ. They would repent. They'd be baptized. God, you fill them with your Holy Spirit. Father God, I pray your Holy Spirit would move through this room in power during the next few moments change, transform your people like only he can. God, we'll give you the glory and honor for all that takes place. We love you and we pray this in your name. Amen.